Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. I'm Jackie Cameron. On today's show, independent financial advisor Dawn Riddler will talk to us about government proposals to use your pension fund for infrastructure investment. DAMP Samantha Graham will be with us on the looming land expropriation without compensation laws. Nick Hudson of Panda and former Sunday Times editor Brian Pottinger about a freedom of speech controversy that has erupted over the debate on COVID-19 lockdowns. In the second half of the show, we have Microsoft's Bill Gates and Tesla's Elon Musk on Bitcoin and John Avardia, CEO of crypto exchange Ovex. First, the news headlines from my business colleague Melanie Nathan. Spurs says total franchise restaurant sales across its local and international operations decreased by a third to just under 3 billion rand. The group has been heavily impacted by lockdown restrictions globally. Profit before tax fell sharply and no dividend was declared. Construction company Wilson Bailey Homes Ofcon has returned to profitability, despite Australian operations weighing on performance. The group says operations in Africa and the UK produced solid results over the first half of the financial year in a challenging environment. Revenue for the year decreased to 20 billion rand and no interim dividend has been declared. Steinhoff International is in talks with providers of its director liability insurance about legal claims resulting from a 2017 accounting crisis that took the retailer to the brink of collapse. The company is working to reach a deal with claimants such as former chairman Christo Visa and settle various class action lawsuits brought by investors after the stock plunged. Steinhoff is using shares in its biggest asset, Pepcor, to help pay for the proposed global settlement, which would reduce its stake to just over 50%. South African billionaire Rob Herzog told BizNews Power Hour that he and Nick Fergus have bought for Santa Kral Airport and plan to build the Lanseria of the Cape. Nick Fergus and I have bought for Santa Kral Airport and we want to build the Lanseria of Cape Town. We're renaming it Cape Winelands Airport. It was built in 1943 by the British. Four great runways, and we own it. Justin Rowe Roberts covers the Johannesburg Stock Exchange throughout the day for BizNews. Justin, what were the main developments on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange today? The JSE All Share Index was up 900 points to 68,400. Some of the day's highlights include NASPIS increased by 65 rand a share to over 3,700 rand. NASPIS has doubled in value and added more than 800 billion to its market capitalization since its lows in March last year. Precious metals producer Impala Platinum was up by more than 14 rand a share to 270 rand. The last time Impala was at these levels was before the global financial crisis in January of 2008. Imperial's old automobile dealership arm Motus increased by 3 rand to 83 rand a share and has now more than tripled in value over the last six months. Lastly, food retailer Woolies ended the day slightly below 50 rand a share, a level last seen almost a year ago when ex-CEO Ian Moyer announced his departure. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against the greenback at 15 rand to the dollar and slightly stronger against the sterling and euro, 20 rand 90 and 18 rand 10 respectively. Gold weakened by $25 to $1,720 an ounce. 
and Bitcoin was flat on the day at $49,000 a Bitcoin, which equates to around 735,000 Rand. Lastly, Brent crude was up 50 cents to $63.80 a barrel. Right, uh, we're just getting our colleague Charles Boerter up in a moment. My apologies. Um, Charles, can you hear me? I can hear you, Alex. Okay, great, Jax. Back over to you. Charles Boerter is our business financial journalist in the Western Cape, and he scours the Stock Exchange News Service for important investment news. Charles, take us through what you discovered about Cash Build today. Jackie, uh, Cash Build made most of their money during the interim period uh, till the end of December by selling more goods and not selling them at much higher prices. Uh, the price ri- rises for their basket of goods the toilets, hammers, bucky loads of bricks and what have you rose minimally uh, in line of SA inflation. Um, as, or, as far as I can see, the story here is this. Uh, when people are not in Zoom meetings uh, or watching Netflix, they're probably improving their properties. Um, I suspect that people that never did DIY, um, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you well. Uh, you were talking about the DIY build, making money for cash build. We've lost Charles. That was Charles Boerter. We'll come back to him later. It's a very warm welcome to Dawn Riddler. Now, Dawn is a familiar face to the business community. Her thought leadership pieces on personal finance topics are always hugely popular, and our webinar attendees love Dawn, not least of all because she's fiercely independent and not afraid to speak her mind. Dawn, let's start with your response to the draft of Regulation 28, which was put out by the National Treasury on Friday. Is there anything that South African pension fund members should be worried about? I don't think so. Um, you know, I think the biggest worry everybody had was that prescribed assets were going to um, be a force, and obviously that isn't the case. So this, um, you know, the, the focus on using um, infrastructure funds and, and that kind of thing in pension funds is going to be voluntary. The, the pension fund managers are going to be able to do this. The Regulation 28 is going to have to be modified because you will find infrastructure right across the different asset classes. Um, you know, it's not an asset class just by itself. So that has to be rejigged so that um, those those pension fund managers can actually in, invest in them. I think you're probably going to find PIC has already been investing quite heavily in it. And you Being know the public investment corporation. Just the public in- aren't familiar with that. That's the biggest uh, investment fund in South Africa, isn't it? Yes, it's the government pension fund, right? And um, they, you know, they they kind of toe the party line. So you know, I think they will will do it because it's patriotic or what they should be doing anyway. Um, and other pension fund managers will probably have a good look and pick and choose investment projects that. Um, will be good for their pensioners, you know, for their investors, not nec- without because they're not being prescribed them. And I think it's a, it's just a jolly good thing that those prescribed assets, you know, which are really a relic of the, you know, National Party right back in the sort of 80s, um, you know, haven't come into being. So when you say prescribed assets, uh, if we can just take a step back, is this government wanting to insist that we invest in infrastructure, whereas now uh, we can invest in infrastructure and there's quite a high cap on infrastructure investment? Is, is yes. that our reading of it? Yes, that's and absolutely right. So, so they're not going to make this compulsory? No, they're not going to make it compulsory. I think the biggest worry that 
um, investors and advisors like myself had was that um, the government would prescribe not just infrastructure projects, but, um, you know, dodgy CEO, um, state-owned enterprises, you know, bonds, you know, South African Airways or Danel or some of these other dodgy um, bonds. I think that that was the biggest fear. That, that would be the, the biggest risk um, to a, a portfolio is that if we're forced to invest in, in dodgy state-owned enterprises. So the way you see it now, do you think pension fund members are likely to foot the bill for the $340 billion and so uh, infrastructure spend announced last month by Tito Mboweni, the finance minister? Is, is this making uh, arrangements to facilitate that? It's making arrangements to facilitate it. But, you know, I th- you know especially private pension funds um, and those, you know, and, and unit trusts and those kind of things that are going, they're going to pick and choose that, you know, the 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 funds the ones that they want to use. So yes, it is going to be funded a lot of it by pension, but probably most of it, quite frankly, by government government pensioners or pension savers. You know, the, anybody who contributes to a government pension at this point. And Dawn, are there any good infrastructure investments worth investing in? It's always seen as a bit of a worry, but are there some opportunities there to generate superior returns? You know, um, this is new. There are infrastructure, you know, um, investments already on the, the exchange. There's, there's some very well-known ones, and they've been doing reasonably well as well. So, you know, this isn't new. This is just sort of government sort of tacking on their their own sort of wish list onto onto those infrastructures. So, yes, there are plenty of them, but that's why it's going to need a little bit of a you know, somebody looking at it to make sure that it's it's not just being used to divert funds or, you know, something along those lines. So yesterday we heard from Magnus Haystack, another independent financial advisor, mm-hmm. and he's been speaking a lot about uh, the need for greater offshore diversification, and he and others were expecting to see a mention of greater offshore diversification in these draft regulations. What's your view on that aspect of the of the regulations? I, I think we, we wished for it. I certainly didn't expect it. Um, you know, you're already allowed to put 30% in there, and um, there was a big hoo-ha or, you know, um, they did find a loophole for um, ETFs, offshore ETFs for a while until the financial um, FSCA actually clamped down on that. So, um, you know, the the biggest problem that I have with Regulation 28, it's not really a problem, is that, you know, um, equities, for example, are capped at 75%. Now, equities in the South African context have been virtually flat for six years. You know, none of my, none of my clients, none of the people who invest with me have managed to get any decent return from local equities. So, you know, that 75% maximum cap is, is a joke because any returns that they've been getting have been coming from offshore equities at 30%, but from things like corporate bonds and other sort of fixed income things, which you normally wouldn't consider in a sort of in investment. They're not the sexy side. And just again for our listeners, the, the Regulation 28 is the rule that governs the way your pension fund must carve out its assets, but it doesn't necessarily govern all our investing opportunities, does it, Dawn? No. How, how can we sort of get around this? It, it's only um, funds that are invested in terms of the F- Pension Funds Act, right? It, it's considered to be prudential 
um, guidelines to protect investors. Um, that's why they put a cap of like 75% on, on equity. There's a cap on commodities. You know, you can put as much cash in there as you like. You can put almost as much bonds in there as you like. But with all your, you know, flexible, your discretionary investments, you can do what you like. You can, you can do 100% um, offshore if you want. John, I'm very interested in what you just said. Uh, it's there to protect investors, but in fact, it has been doing exactly the opposite from, from what I understand. You say that 70% of, has got to go into South African stocks. 75. They've done nothing. They've not years. got to the maximum that they can go in there. But only 30% in offshore. Yes. So maximum. it's a penalty to keep at 30%. It is. It, it, it is. And it's supposed to be? Protecting you know, the, the thing is that when, when you're um, trying to build a portfolio for a retiree, the biggest risk is that they don't have enough money at retirement because it hasn't grown big, you know, fast enough. And so, I mean, I've got clients where, you know, what we expected the portfolio to do six years ago, it's very different to what it looks like now because we've been hamstrung. Interesting. So, um, Alec, would you be putting your money into a pension fund in South Africa? Well, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, <laughs> but uh, no, uh, in a word, no. I, I, I think that the penalties that exist through Regulation 28, although well-intended, maybe when they wrote it, however many years ago, we've got an economy that is growing at less than the population growth rate. What does that mean? That means that you are continuously putting more and more stress onto the fiscus, uh, we've got 18 million people who are on social grants, 3 million people who pay tax. In fact, the latest figures came out 118,000 people who pay 25% of all income tax. So you, you've got an economy here that's way out of kilter and way out of balance and has got some very strange uh, economic uh, st uh, policies. On the other hand, if you have looking internationally, you have the third and fourth industrial revolution, you have exponential shares, you have great opportunities, as we've shown in our business portfolio. And I'm not a money manager, and I can make 30% compound a year just by putting it into the right stocks. And the, the uh, Dawn's clients have been forced to put their money into something that hasn't grown. It's almost a crime, that. Um, you know, but you've got to actually look at it holistically. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying, you know, yes, the investments per se haven't, you know, shot the lights out. You've had to be... Haven't really, shot the lights out. Uh, no, no, they, they're no, backwards. Right, look, if they were 75% in, in local equity, they had. But, I mean, very few decent financial advisors have done that, right? So My what clients, have they done? You know, they've maximised the offshore okay. exposure. They've maximised, for example, commodities at the moment. We're maximising commodity exposure. And corporate bonds up until certainly pre-pandemic were giving very good returns of around about eight and a half, nine and a half, sometimes even ten and a half percent, right? Um, including Steinoff, no, including no, African no. Bank, <laughs> no, look, <laughs> which aren't, and there were lots of corporate bonds yeah, in Steinoff, which are worthless. Um, you know, I think when you, when you choose corporate bonds, and I mean, I, I don't like corporate bond unit trusts, I hate them. Right. Um, I don't think there's a single unit trust out there with corporate bonds that actually does it properly. But in a bespoke portfolio where you've got an asset manager who can pick and choose the quality um, corporate bonds out there, and there are corp corp quality corporate bonds out there. And, you know, the odd um, preference share, I mean, like Discovery put out a 
pretty high yielding preference in, mm, okay. in well, December. To, you know, but you know it is. But the thing is that you do get a tax break, Alex. And and you know, as as a financial advisor, you do factor that into into the equation in terms of, you know, if you're on the forty forty five percent tax bracket, and you take out the three fifty k, you're going to get a chunk of that back. You're going to get one hundred sixty five thousand of that back from the taxman. And the tax there are not very many opportunities, particularly for salaried individuals, to actually get a bit of a tax break. So you know, it it isn't a sort of these are all these are crap. Right, you know, they, there's a time and place, and there are a lot of salaried individuals who have no option because it's part of their, part of their. Twelve J gone. There's even less. Uh, no, uh, that was that's a travesty. You know, I mean, that was purely that was spite. So that's Dawn Ridler having an in-depth conversation with business founder Alec Hogg about whether it's a good idea to invest in South African pensions or not. Dawn's going to stay with us to pick up on the hot topic of expropriation without compensation and how that affects our finances. First, we hear from Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, a legal expert with the IRR, which is a liberal think tank. Dr. Jeffrey, who has been ringing the warning bells about expropriation without compensation, spoke to me recently to unpack the details of the draft legislation. Our economy is always is already hugely struggling because of the COVID pandemic and the successive lockdowns that have been needed. So we're at a, a point where we need all the help that we can possibly give to our economy. And instead, the government is busy pushing through Parliament two bills which deal with land expropriation. By far the most serious is the Constitutional Amendment Bill. This bill is currently being drafted by a parliamentary ad hoc committee, which is due to finish its work by the end of March 2021. Once it makes its recommendation, presumably for the content of the bill that has been put out for public comment, then Parliament will be able to adopt it very swiftly. First, the National Assembly will need to pass it by a two-thirds majority, and then it will go to the National Council of Provinces, where it will need the votes of six out of nine provinces. And that bill, once enacted, will allow for nil compensation on the expropriation of both land and the improvements on it. And it will also empower Parliament to adopt any number of further statutes by ordinary majority in which they will set out the circumstances in which nil compensation should apply. So in other words, we'll be giving our legislature a blank check to decide on any number of future instances in which we will have expropriation without compensation. And the second bill we have is one that's intended to complement the constitutional amendment, and that is the expropriation bill of 2020. That bill will also allow the payment of nil compensation on expropriation. It says in five listed circumstances, but it also makes it plain that that list is not a closed one. So again, there could be other instances where nil compensation will apply and of which we're not yet aware. So it adds up to a great deal of uncertainty as to how far expropriation without compensation could extend. And this at a point when the economy is very vulnerable, we urgently need very much more investment in order to kickstart growth and try and recover the two million jobs that have been lost through the pandemic and the lockdown. And yet we're doing, taking policy steps which will make it all the more difficult to get our economy into a growth phase. The Constitution, Section 25, in a provision that is not going to be changed, defines property as not limited to land. 
and the expropriation bill has the same definition that property is not limited to land. So it could indeed include people's homes, business premises, mining rights. It could give the government an increased way of gaining access to people's pensions and the like. So there really is a matter of great moment here. And yet far too many commentators are assuming that these two bills are concerned only with how to speed up and hopefully improve land reform. But their ambit is in fact much wider. You can listen to the full BizNews interview with Dr. Jeffrey on the BizNews radio channel on Spotify. DAMP Samantha Graham has been hard at work campaigning against land expropriation without compensation. She's with us now on the line. Samantha. Yes, hi, Jackie. Hi, hi. how are you? Fine, thank you for joining us. Samantha, just give us a bit of an, uh, an overview of what, you, what the DA has been doing to try and halt land expropriation without compensation in its tracks. Okay, so Jackie, just to clarify, um, you know, a lot of a lot of um, our opposition are saying that we're a- um, anti-expropriation and we're opposing the expropriation bill in its entirety, and we're supporting apartheid legislation, which is fundamentally untrue. We understand the need for expropriation, and we furthermore support the need for land reform. Um, but these have got to be done properly, um, and in both cases. The expropriation bill is being sold as this panacea to to deal with the ills of land reform, which is not the case. Um, and they're sneaking in um, clauses around expropriation with, without compensation that are really going to impinge on private property rights. So we are we've obviously run a we've run a petition just so that people can make their voices heard. We've already had over a hundred thousand signatures on our petition, and we have submitted from the DA's side. We have submitted our own submission to the to the portfolio committee, and going into the next phase, the DA will obviously oppose the clauses that we have an issue with. Um, particularly around specific clauses in Section 12.3, which is around the expropriation without compensation. Um, we need more clarity on the property and definition thereof um, and certain other clauses that, that we find problematic. So that's where we are at at this point. Samantha, Dr. Jeffrey warned recently that the legislation will allow the state to seize many of your assets, including your home, regardless of skin color. Can you just elaborate? You've also done some uh, analysis and, underta- and you've got some granular detail on how this legislation is actually going to affect our assets, not just property. The problem we have around around the Act is that property is defined um, as per Section 25 of the Constitution, and there it's defined as property, but not not just you know land. Um, and in another section on the, of the definitions um, under courts, they refer to intangible property, but there's no other reference made to intangible property throughout the rest of the the bill. In addition, there are no um, clauses that deal with expropriation of things like intangible property and how those will be addressed. So although it, although it encompasses expropriation of, of property, I mean, the expropriation without compensation section obviously deals specifically with land, but the rest of the bill covers property in its entirety and under all definitions. And that makes it problematic for us because there's no reference to how that will be done, how compensation will be sought, et cetera, et cetera. And the land expropriation without compensation um, does have a little bit of a, a precursor to it where it says but not limited to. Um, and that also, as far as we're concerned, opens the door to other um, means of expropriation and, and particularly perhaps other, other forms of property.
Dawn Riddler of Karenga Wealth Ecology is with us now, and Dawn is a financial advisor who has lived in a number of countries where there's been land expropriation, including Kenya and Rwanda, and Dawn has also been signaling the alarm about land expropriation without compensation. Dawn, what are the implications of this legislation for the personal finances of hardworking South Africans? My biggest concern is around uh, foreign direct investment. Um, you know, a lot of our trade deals have actually um, got embedded property rights. And if we start eroding those property rights, some of those trade deals could go away. That, you know, from an economic point of view, that is my, my biggest concern is that we're actually going to chase off direct foreign investment, which we need, we, you know, desperately need from, from that perspective. I think from an individual's, um, point of view, you know, um, you know, sort of us housewives, you know, living in the suburbs and that kind of thing, I think we're, you know, sort of way down the line in terms of that sort of, um, you know, being ex- you know, our, our properties being expropriated and that, but it has struck a chord and it struck a fear into many many South Africans. And you know, it comes up all the time in conversations with with my clients. And there is under I've seen it in my client base already. This silent emigration already starting to happen in anticipation of of this of, of this happening. You know, I, I think one of the things that worries me the most that, you know, if this was taken to its sort of maximum um, conclusion, it would result in the, the really the failure of the banking system because you've got all these bonds out there. If you go and expropriate somebody's property and all the land, you know, their house on it and everything else, um, do you think they're going to continue to pay the bond on their property? I don't think so, Right. And it really does beg a belief that uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa is wanting to push this legislation through because you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that it is such a flawed law. We, we see what happens north of the Limpopo. I mean, Zimbabwe is a textbook case of land grabs uh, and, and what actually happens to a whole country and economy. Um, Doc, uh, Samantha, why is it that the ANC is just pushing this through when it appears like absolute lunacy? Okay, so so again, I mean, there obviously there are two processes underway, and I think you alluded to that before I came on. Um, so the one is the amendment to section twenty-five, and then obviously um, of the constitution, and then obviously the expropriation bill. So we're not opposed to the passing of an expropriation bill. It's a requirement. We need it. We need a law of general application that gives effect to the constitution to allow for government to expropriate land in the for public purposes. Part of the issue we have here is is public interest, which kind of is very vague. And that will allow government to apply expropriation in anything that it deems to be public interest. So it could be for land reform purposes. And that's fine. Again, we, we support land reform. However, there's nothing to clarify what happens post the expropriation. So if, if a property is expropriated for land reform purposes, it can then be given to a CADA as they're busy doing with um, properties in, in the Western Cape at the moment, friends and connected people. So is that then in the public interest? So these are the sort of things, you know, I keep saying to people, um, they, they keep saying we're scaremongering and, you know, we, we speak about SWAT Khafar and all of those things. At the end of the day, we need to legislate with the worst possible government in mind, not with a government that is, is going to be kind and generous and sweet and think of everybody's individual property rights. And currently we're in an election year. 
The ANC has been pushed into a corner by the EFF that have tried to own this whole nationalization of land and expropriation without compensation. And the ANC is now in a position where they're going to start losing support from more of their um, more extreme supporters if they don't address the land issue. And this seems to be the easiest way of addressing the land issue without actually having to follow proper land reform processes because this is not a land reform policy but it's being sold as such to everybody because everybody loves the idea of expropriation without compensation and making people feel that they are being repaid for the property that was stolen, when in actual fact this is actually just um, a primary source of land acquisition for the state to do what the state is required to do in, in delivering services. So it's being very, very badly packaged um, under a political, um, you know, methodology to, to secure votes in the upcoming election. That's my interpretation of, of why it's being sold as such. You made a point there, which is uh, quite interesting, Samantha, about the legislation for a government uh, that, that is supposedly nice and kind. Didn't we do something similar when the original constitution was put together and uh, we, we, it was written for President Mandela, and next comes uh, Mr. Zuma. Absolutely, and, and it gave him, it gave him a, a lot of rights that he possibly shouldn't have had. And, and I think that we need to learn from past mistakes, and we need to learn from what's happened in Zimbabwe and, and in other countries. At the end of the day, we need to make sure that protection of property rights, which is a cornerstone of fundamental rights, is protected by, by um, legislation. And Sorry. Um, and also just not to, not to give loopholes to a government, as somebody put it on Twitter the other day, which I thought was a classic response. This is a government that banned open-toed shoes during lockdown. We have no idea how logical the decision-making is going to be, and we can't entrust um, legislation that is poorly drafted to a government that can make arbitrary decisions like that. So, Samantha, what's next for the DA? How are you going to stop this legislation, or do you think this is inevitable that it's going to be pushed through with the support of the EFF? Look, you know, we're going into the next phase of public participation, so um, organizations um, can now make um, inputs and submissions to the portfolio committee on which we serve, and then um, we will be doing public hearings, and again, we will be appealing to people to please come out in their numbers and make their voices heard so that we can get a real feeling of what the, the you know, people on the ground feel about this legislation. We will obviously also endeavor to educate people um, around what they are being asked to vote on or to, to push through in terms of the legislation so that they understand that they're not being told the full truth about what this legislation is about and what it's going to result in. And then obviously um, based on that, we will find out whether or not there are going to be amendments made to the bill as it stands. If not, we will then oppose it vigorously, um, perhaps even as far as the constitutional court. But at this stage, um, we are hoping that, that we can garner sufficient support um, to make the amendments that will make this a better piece of legislation. So before we close off here, do you think that there's going to be a lot of years and years of legislation and fighting in the courts so this won't really come to pass for at least five or ten years? 
Look, I hope not. You know, we like to pride ourselves on this being a participative democracy, and I'm hoping that we can drive that as as a cornerstone of the of the sort of decision making that gets done in our committee, and that if we can show enough reason to to make this a better piece of legislation, that the powers that be will actually understand that this is not about the DA you know, blocking land reform or the DA being opposed to any form of expropriation. But this is about the DA driving the protection of property rights while understanding the need for government to expropriate land for public purposes. So I'm hopeful that we can we have a good committee um, in Parliament. It's it's a it's quite a cohesive committee and I'm hoping that um sense will prevail and that through our committee we can drive amendments to this bill so that it isn't dragged out forever, there isn't litigation around it, and that we can actually get a solid piece of legislation in place that um, addresses the need but protects private property rights. That's DAMP Samantha Graham, who's been hard at work campaigning against land expropriation without compensation. Coming up, we hear from Nick Hudson, who is the keynote speaker at the Business Inaugural Investment Conference in March. You are going to grace us with your presence at the first Business Investment Conference in the Drakensberg coming in two weeks' time. I can't and, wait. And uh, a, 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 a keynote address that you're going to be giving uh, first up in the morning what are you going to be telling delegates? I'm going to go into the detailed history of lockdowns, where they came from, the effects that they've had, and get get right beneath the the hood of the lockdown engine and go through all of the very strange mechanics and processes by, by which lockdowns were visited upon us. There's lots of new material in it. And this being a, a closed type event, I'm going to be very forthcoming. And uh, in the past, we've always been quite mindful of not getting too far ahead of where uh, the general public is. Sometimes if you do that, you sound like you're out on, out on a limb. And we you know, face a lot of um, attack when we, we say things that are you know, hard to swallow for scientists and the public or the journalists uh, out there. So I'm going to go a no-holds-barred. Uh, review on lockdown and restrictions in general and uh, contrast that to what ought to happen and, and how it happened in the past. Are you finding that the public opinion is moving towards your position or away from it? It's, it's very difficult to judge. There are, um, we certainly on social media and in, um, you know, in, in, in the comments uh, sections of um, online newspapers we see a lot of support we actually and in, in, we know in some circumstances if somebody makes a criticism of panda we don't have to do anything ourselves because there are enough people who have listened closely enough to our messages that they will get they will respond for for us and get those messages more or less right so there are a lot of you know very loyal followers and uh they often become end up becoming members of panda then they're very rabid critics on the other side who are kind of noisy but a little bit insubstantial. You know how hard it was to set up that first debate. Um, you know, since then I've only had one other, and it, it was it was a it was a great affair. We I ended up, you know, convincing the guy of, of the case against lockdowns. I wasn't successful on the masks mask mandate side of things, but we it went well enough that he actually invited me to address his 
class at the University of Toronto, not once but twice. Um, and that went very well. So, the, the, you know, on, there are more extreme voices that, that make a lot of noise. And then in the middle are a lot of people who I think are a little bit confused and they will listen and then one day they'll, you know, they think, oh, they get scared or they, they think maybe we, we got something wrong or, they, they, you know, and those are the people we want to address above all others um, because I think that, you know, there's, there's a great saying that uh, pe- men, men go mad in herds and regain their sanity one by one and this is a process of getting people to regain their sanity one by one. Well, uh, we do have a fascinating clip coming up now. Um, Bill Gates versus uh, um, Elon Musk. And uh, we've got in studio John Ovadia, Jax. So we're going to be talking all about Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrencies. But I guess before we get there, let's hear what Bill Gates told our colleagues at Bloomberg. Tesla could potentially make more money from its Bitcoin investment this year than profits from electric cars in all of 2020. What's your take on that? Look, Elon has tons of money and he's very sophisticated. So I don't worry that, you know, his Bitcoin will sort of randomly go up or down. I do think people get bought into these manias who may not have as much money to spare. So I'm not bullish on Bitcoin. And, you know, my general thought would be that, you know, if you have less money than Elon, you should probably watch out. Why aren't you bullish on Bitcoin? There are things we invest in in society that produce output. Bitcoin happens to use a lot of energy. It happens to promote anonymous transactions. They're not reversible transactions. The Gates Foundation does a lot in terms of digital currency, but those are things where you can see who's making the transaction. Uh, So digital money is a good thing. You know, there's a different approach that's local currency and attributed and, you know, deals with all the money laundering and terrorism type regulations and yet gives you the very convenience and the low cost of transaction. You know, our foundation is very proud that in the pandemic, a lot of the countries we funded to do this were able to get money out to their citizens very, very efficiently. So that's something that it's not got the visibility of Bitcoin, but the move towards digital money uh, that we're very engaged in is a super positive thing that eventually will get to even the poorest countries. For those joining us now, we've got Dawn Riddler, independent financial advisor who runs the firm Karenka Wealth Ecology. And we also have cryptocurrency expert, John Avadia. Welcome, John. Uh, before we get to you, let's just pick up with Dawn. Dawn, are you bullish on cryptocurrencies? I'm not bullish per se. I, I think blockchain technology is definitely the way of the, the future. Um, our, but we do expose our clients, well, our bespoke clients, and specifically offshore clients, to a small percentage of Bitcoin. Um, and um, I was actually in a meeting at the Financial Planning Institute today, and the Bitcoin is now going to be a regulated product in this country, um, which means that advisors like myself will... Um, you know, be able to advise on it and, and give. I, I think it. Um, I think it's a good way to add a little bit of diversity. It, it behaves a little bit like gold. It is a sort of alternate um, asset. I did ask the question. Well, from a SARS perspective, from a tax perspective, um, is it going to be considered? A, you know, a, an asset that has capital gains tax, or is it going to be considered income? And and apparently, the answer to that is it depends on how it's used. 
So if it's used as an investment, then it'll be CGT applicable. If it's used as a currency, then it's going to be, um, you know, a different use as a currency. So um, I think there's room for it. And, and we've got, my, you know, some, but we're talking, you know, 2 or 3%. We're not talking about huge amounts of money. And any client that sort of says to me, oh, Dawn, you know, I want to set up a Bitcoin account. My, my flippant answer is I don't have a gambling license. <laughs> Um, I'm a financial advisor, but, you know, it is becoming more mainstream. It is becoming more of a, you know, it, it's now starting to get into solid portfolios. So um, I, I think it's got a little bit more um, upside to it. Um, but, you know, I, th I think it is going to, over the medium term, continue to be pretty volatile. John? Ovadia, CEO of Ovex, it could be argued that perhaps you have a license for a casino there with your cryptocurrency business. Can you just tell us a bit about what you do? Crypto derivatives, it sounds very exotic. Yeah, sure. So um, I run Ovex. We're the biggest cryptocurrency OTC desk and prime brokerage in South Africa. Um, we trade about 4 billion rand per month. Our clients trade through our OTC desk. So it's essentially an exchange similar to Luna. Um, yeah, so it could be argued that it's uh, a gambling license. I don't, I don't think so. I think it's uh, becoming obviously more and more of a, a, a recognized financial product. I do agree with Dawn, and it's very exciting that the FSCA is going to regulate cryptocurrency because currently it is uh, speculative and unregulated, which means that, uh, that uh, uh, financial advisors such as Dawn aren't able to advise their clients to invest there. So, John, is it very exciting for the people who trade in cryptocurrencies? I believe from another crypto platform that uh, a lot of people use this as a way to generate uh, some sort of return without paying tax. Some people use this to get their money offshore without going through the hassle of the various uh, exchange controls and so on. What are you seeing in your platform? How are people using this currency? Yeah, absolutely. It's a dollar-pegged um, currency. So you're definitely getting um, czar, a czar hedge when you're buying cryptocurrency. So I think that's a very big use case for it. There's also a very popular segment of cryptocurrency called stable coins, um, which are essentially pegged one-to-one -to, -one to the dollar. And you can get really high yields, as high as 15-20% yields on um on usd which is obviously incredible so i think there's a lot of people doing that uh alternatively there's people speculating on the price of bitcoin which is up uh, about 400 uh, i think 120 percent this year if i'm not mistaken but up a significant gazillion percent, gazillion percent yeah. <laughs> and that's going up even more in, yeah, in my opinion alec do we have bitcoin in the business share portfolio no, I'm a neural Rabini and I uh, actually don't agree with Bill Gates on a lot of things, but on this one I do. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I'll tell you why, Jax. I was at a conference in London uh, that our uh, guy from Offshore Alert put together and he had the, the investigations head of the IRS in America and the investigations head of their equivalent in the UK. And these guys said that 90% of the trade in cryptos is by the underworld. It's by crime. Now that's cool as long as crime can, can uh, continue to do this. But the minute that the authorities clamp down on it, it is going to change that market, um, be a seismic change in the market, perhaps then make it uh, palatable to Rabinis and Bill Gates, etc. But until there's more certainty, uh, it's just I like to sleep at night. <laughs> so I've got, I've got a counterpoint to that. So, <laughs> so um, in, I think it was like, I don't know, around 2013 when uh, Silk Road 
was taken down. Everyone thought that was the end of cryptocurrency because uh, they seized 300,000 Bitcoin or whatever it was. Everyone thought that was the whole use case. But in reality, that was only about 3% of the Bitcoin use case. Um, and Bitcoin continued to flourish and continue to grow. So I think we'll see growth uh, outside of illicit activity, mostly in the hedges to the government and current financial systems. We see like the US printing unlimited money. Um, you do need some sort of hard currency. No, there's no doubt that it is a hedge against the printing presses going through. My only uh, fear as a conservative investor, someone who likes to go to bed at night and sleep, is that the authorities have to clamp down in some way on the underworld activity, if 90% of it, according to the IRS and uh, the HMRC division, is, the, is actually being done by crime. Because if you're a criminal, well, if you're a South African, and I'd love to hear what your, your uh, um, clients are doing, Dawn, but you want to externalize money in South Africa, what's easier than to buying a few Bitcoin? Uh, yes, I mean, I understand your, your blood money concern, right, which is, um, I, I think, a concern that a lot of people have is that, um, you know, money is being used illicitly, you know, instead of the dollar, which is still also, of course, used illicitly as well, right? Um, but, um, you know, I think it's because of the printing press, because this quantitative easing and, and the printing of money is almost out of control, quite frankly, you know, with another... Almost. Oh, yeah, pretty much. It, 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 yeah, um, and it doesn't seem to. So, I mean, they're you know about to throw another two two trillion at it and this kind of thing. And you see the you know. So um, we're talking about small investments. You know, two percent. You know, not we're not talking about a quarter or a hundred percent or whatever. My, my point was different. Your clients who want to get money offshore. Yeah. The smart ones are buying uh, Bitcoin. I don't ask Crypto. them. You don't yes. ask? Okay. <laughs> John? Yeah, well, they can just take it through the bank, most yeah. of them. Most of them. They're not taking look, more than 10 or 11 million around. Look, it, it's not that difficult to, to take money um, out of the country, you know, if you're looking at, at 10 million and that. But, you know, if, if you've gone over your cap and you want to get out more, then sure, Bitcoin's a good way to do it. I'd love to know what all the tobacco, uh, the illicit tobacco and... Uh, alcohol purveyors, how they've been getting their money, where their money is sitting. It's certainly not sitting in bank accounts. It's certainly not sitting uh, anywhere else than a highly tradable currency like like crypto. It is what it is. Another another counterpoint to that is in Nigeria where you have the government who are oppressive and uh, when there were those um, protests against the SARS, the, the police brutality and all that, the way they were funding them was often with Bitcoin. So often uh, funding illicit activity in inverted commas is, is a positive for society because the government might not be good. So you're an anarchist for sure. Well, in Nigeria, if there's police brutality, <laughs> I would Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, you well, know, you're in the, no, you're in the field. Point. If you live in a country like Zimbabwe, you probably do want to get your money out any which way you like. And let's face it, that government hasn't been particularly ethical with its uh, own citizens. So uh, do you get a lot of clients from elsewhere in Africa, John? Uh, yeah, there's incredible demand uh, from Africa. We were about to launch in, uh, in Nigeria, um, and then their central bank basically made it illegal to trade in cryptocurrency. Um, yeah, and that's just purely because they're losing control, and, and they're, they're, uh, they're oppressive. My point exactly, and that's why if a central bank can make it illegal to trade in currency, then if you own it, it's, a bit, it's high risk. Well, but no, you see uh, the price of Bitcoin in Zimbabwe. It used to trade at a 30% premium. Since they've banned it, it's traded at a 70% premium. And the volumes have gone up. But you get caught, you go to jail. You get caught, they take your money, I think. 
Uh, you go to jail so, in Zimbabwe. No, I mean, I mean Nigeria. What Tesla wrong? You might be getting Bitcoin wrong too. I'm, I got Tesla wrong because I got in early and, and Elon in 2018 uh, went a bit dippy. Uh, and the SEC was attacking him. He was, uh, he was tweeting about selling the company, which he shouldn't have. I, I believe that investments should be things you put money into after you've, you've uh, done your homework and you sleep at night. Now, people on Bitcoin have made an enormous amount of money. In 1987, they made packets on a company called Lefkochrisis, which went from zero to, I don't know, 150 rand. But after the crash of 87, it was about 10 cents. In fact, it went bankrupt. So they made a lot of money of those guys who got out at the top. I don't know cryptocurrency. All I know is that what was, what was being said by the guys at the IRS is that there's a lot of illegal activity in it. And when there's illegal activity, like them or not, the regulators get involved. And when the regulators get involved, free markets get uh, affected. So, sure, I don't know if... Uh, I, I would not dispute that lots of people have made piles of money out of Bitcoin and good luck to them. It's just too high risk for me, that's all. So, John, tell us a bit more about the people who are trading through your platform. Are, are these people from all walks of life, older people, younger people, mostly young men? Who are the people that are getting involved in this space? Yeah, sure. So our platform is catered to um, high net worth and institutional clients. So um, mostly brokers that act on behalf of uh, their subset of clients. Um, a very, very big portion of our volume is done is done um, through a mechanism called the arbitrage. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the Bitcoin arbitrage, but Bitcoin trades. Yeah, please spell it out because it's quite a new area. Yeah, sure. So the arbitrage that's very exciting. I think even Alec might uh, be excited by. It. <laughs> so the the Bitcoin arbitrage, uh, Bitcoin and all cryptocurrency in South Africa trade uh, between two to as high as nine percent uh, higher than it does in the rest of the world. So South Africans are able to send money overseas, buy cryptocurrency, and sell it here for, at the moment, it's about 25 3% higher, um, pretty much instantly and risk-free. So a large portion of our clients, well, I'll explain how it's, how it's risk-free. And, and with our platform, it's the only way that it actually is risk-free. Um, so a large portion of our clients... the wrong financial advisor. Why are you sharing this secret? No, because uh, we want our clients to make money. So the way it works is they simply buy, uh, send money overseas. Um, we have a, a partner overseas. I'll convert, say, USD into cryptocurrency stablecoin, say, TUSD. Um, and then the clients are able to sell it uh, to our OTC desk on a credit line. So they sell it at the same time they buy the dollars and instantly lock in that 2 to 3% uh, profit. When the funds arrive overseas, they convert into TUSD, settle their trade, and their rounds are available with a, with a profit. Um, so that's a very big segment of our clients and brokers who are doing that on behalf of of their group of clients. That's the big part. So John, just to get that right. John, you've um, now just given Ed Kiswetter and his merry men at SARS all the evidence <laughs> they want to launch their attack on Bitcoin traders. Uh, because do you think these guys, your clients, do you think they just declare all of this to the revenue services? Yeah. So if it's untraceable? They, they do. Well, it's traceable all through us. So they know that. We have uh, now, obviously, it's tax season. So we have tons and tons of requests for, um, for like a... So I, 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 I T three. 
So it's capital gains tax, basically, isn't it? Well, this one would be income tax because they're trading okay, it. Right, so they, they're, they're trading buying it, it yeah. selling it. They're asking for, for that statement. We're also yeah. going to launch, uh, we now assist clients with getting tax clearance certificates because they do the 1 million and they want to go do the 10 million. So it's actually in their benefit to be tax compliant. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. We heard from a tax advisor last week that uh, SARS is actually uh, investigating and putting out sort of phishing questionnaires to tax advisors asking their clients whether they've actually been trading in crypto at all. So joining us on the line, we've got Brian Pottinger. Yes, good evening. Hello, Jackie. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Brian, we had uh, Nick Hudson on the line a bit earlier, and he's been taking a lot of flack from some media outlets for his views on uh, lockdown and how badly the government has done. But the, the crux of the matter is that he hasn't been given a right of reply. And uh, for our listeners who don't know, Brian Pottinger is the former editor and publisher of the Sunday Times, and he has also produced a book based on his investigation into how governments have been handling COVID-19 lockdown. So who better to ask about the right of reply and COVID-19 lockdowns than Brian? So Brian, what is the right of reply? And is it essential for media companies to offer people a right of reply? I think it is. I think as part of the sort of, you know, oldest and most natural justice things, the right of the, the right of reply, the right to be heard. Um, and that's a, a long established legal principle. I think if media entities are in the business of presenting views and ideas, and particularly if they challenge the ideas of other people, then they should at least reflect and give the opportunity for the other people to respond. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened with COVID-19. Um, and, and, and it's a, it's a very worrying, a development particularly for people like myself who come out of a long tradition of media and journalism and have invested many years uh, in trying to, to, to advance and to, to grow media freedoms and in sometimes fairly hostile environments. Alec, tell us a bit about the right of reply to Biz News. Oh, gee, okay. Uh, we, we see it as a, a legal right as well as a moral right that if we write something, publish something about somebody who is upset about it, we always offer them the option of a right of reply. We've published lawyers' letters. We've published uh, allegations from people. And in fact, in COVID-19, they wanted to take us to the media council. We published that, and then the media council realized, well, we're not members. So as a result, the, the media council then withdrew and the people who were attacking us withdrew as well. But that's what it's about. We are a platform. We're not, a, we're not here to bang any drums. We're here to support South Africa through dissemination of information that we don't always believe or agree with. We believe that our uh, audience, our community, are intelligent enough to make up their own minds and we try to give them every side of the angle. So if we err by not giving the opposite point of view and someone's cross about it we publish we publish mailboxes all the time we publish right of replies because we're a platform we're not uh, here to public to to uh, promote any particular line even even on things like cryptocurrencies uh, brian pottinger's just published a book called states of panic COVID 19 and the new medieval and brian you published it on amazon and smashwords is that because it was too sensitive a topic for the more you know the established publishers to run with your uh, insights 
that that's exactly right, Jackie. And you know, Alec, I think Alec summed it up perfectly. The right of reply, but there's a, there's a secondary issue, or perhaps a primary issue, and that is simply getting voice heard. Let alone whether that voice is right or wrong, or whether it has the right of reply, is simply getting it heard. And and the one experience I've had over writing this COVID nineteen book, and it's the, the eighth book I've written. Is, is that publishers that I've dealt with over many years, uh, who've published and distributed me, um, decided not to, to, to tackle this book. And they were very polite about it. And they said, look, I think we better just let the thing develop. It's a fast developing story. Why do we do it later? But the bottom line is we don't want to touch this because it's scary. Uh, as far as Amazon's concerned, I had the rather intriguing experience the first time, well, not the first time in my life, that somebody wrote to me and said, no, we're not going to publish your stuff. We're not going to sell it. Uh, we're doing nothing about it because it contravenes our protocols. Uh, that was Amazon Kindle. They put me on something called an alert. So I challenged that. They came back and said, no, we're still going to not carry your material. Um, and then I wrote a, a very substantial challenge to this. And then, uh, and my thanks to them, they said, okay, we'll carry you. But what I'm saying is that when you're dealing with massive media entities, um, huge distributors of information who simply say, no, we're not carrying you, not because of any rational basis, not because your book is necessarily wrong or that it's badly written or it's offensive, but just simply because it's not according with a particular ideological position that's being held. Then we are into a new medieval. Then we really are into the Galileo versus the Inquisition period. Uh, and I gravely fear that is where we're going. And COVID-19 captured much of that, apart from certain signal uh, exceptions, and I would certainly call business one of those. There has been a very, very strong bias against presenting any critical voices uh, of the orthodox uh, narrative of COVID-19. Uh, and that's worrying. You can hear an in-depth interview with Brian Pottinger on his investigation into the world's handling of COVID-19 on the BizNews Spotify channel. Finally, a quick wrap of what's been happening on the Johannesburg stock market with Justin Rowe Roberts, who covers the markets for BizNews. The JSE All Share Index was up 900 points to 68,400. Some of the day's highlights include NASPIS increased by 65 rand a share to over 3,700 rand. Precious metal producer Impala was up by more than 14 rand a share on the day to 270. Imperial's old auto dealership arm Motus increased by 3 rand to 83 rand a share. And lastly, food re- retailer Woolies ended the day slightly below 50 rand a share, up 2 rand on the day. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against the greenback at 15 rand to the dollar and slightly stronger against the sterling and euro respectively. Gold weakened by $25 to $1,720 an ounce. Bitcoin was flat on the day at $49,000 a Bitcoin, which equates to around 730,000 rand. And Brent crude is up 50 cents to $63.80 a barrel. And in the US markets, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, S&P 500 and NASDAQ are slightly in the red. And that's all we've got time for today. From me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the team at BizNews, thank you for joining us for today's BizNews Power Hour. Please do send your comments and feedback to Jackie at biznews.com. The BizNews team will be back at the same time tomorrow live here on Fine Music Radio. You can also find the show later on the BizNews Radio channel on Spotify. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at BizNews. Thank you.